Chapter thirty three of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter thirty three. Though I had consented to this scheme, I was conscious that some hazards attended it. I was afraid of calumny, which might trouble the peace or destroy the reputation of my friend. I was afraid of my own weakness, which might be seduced into an indiscreet marriage by the charms or sufferings of this bewitching creature. I felt that there was no price too dear to save her from slander. A fair fame is of the highest importance to a young female, and the loss of it but poorly supplied by the testimony of her own conscience. I had reason for tenfold solicitude on this account, since I was her only protector and friend. Hence I cherished some hopes that time might change her views and suggest less dangerous schemes. Meanwhile I was to lose no time in visiting Malverton and Philip Hadwin. About ten days had elapsed since we had deserted Malverton. These were days of successive storms. And travelling had been rendered inconvenient. The weather was now calm and clear, and early in the morning that ensued the dialogue which I have just related, I set out on horseback. Honest Caleb was found eating his breakfast nearly in the spot where he had been first discovered. He answered my inquiries by saying that two days after our departure, several men had come to the house, one of whom was Philip Hadwin. They had interrogated him as to the condition of the farm and the purpose of his remaining on it. William Hadwin they knew to have been some time dead, but where were the girls, his daughters? Caleb answered that Susie the eldest was likewise dead. These tidings excited astonishment. When died she, and how, and where was she buried? It happened two days before, and she was buried, he believed. But could not tell where. Not tell where? By whom then was she buried? Really, he could not tell. Some strange man came there just as she was dying. He went to the room, and when she was dead, took her away. But what he did with the body was more than he could say, but he had a notion that he buried it. The man stayed till the morning, and then went off with Lizzie, leaving him to keep house by himself. He had not seen either of them, nor indeed a single soul since. This was all the information that Caleb could afford the visitants. It was so lame and incredible that they began to charge the man with falsehood and to threaten him with legal animadversion. Just then Mr. Ellis entered the house, and being acquainted with the subject of discourse, told all that he himself knew. He related the midnight visit which I had paid him, explained my former situation in the family, and my disappearance in September. He had stated the advice he had given me to carry Eliza to her uncle's, and my promise to comply with his counsel. The uncle declared he had seen nothing of his niece, and Caleb added that when she set out, she took the road that led to town. These hints afforded grounds for much conjecture and suspicion. Ellis now mentioned some intelligence that he had gathered respecting me in a late journey to blank. It seems I was the son of an honest farmer in that quarter who married a tidy girl of a milkmaid that lived with him. 
my father had detected me in making some atrocious advances to my mother-in-law and had turned me out of doors. I did not go off, however, without rifling his drawer of some hundreds of dollars, which he had laid up against a rainy day. I was noted for such pranks, and was hated by all the neighbors for my pride and laziness. It was easy, by comparison of circumstances, for Ellis to ascertain that Hadwin's servant, Mervyn, was the same against whom such heavy charges were laid. Previously to this journey he had heard of me from Hadwin, who was loud in praise of my diligence, sobriety, and modesty. For his part, he had always been cautious of giving countenance to vagrants that came from nobody knew where, and worked their way with a plausible tongue. He was not surprised to hear it whispered that Betsy Hadwin had fallen in love with the youth, and now, no doubt, he had persuaded her to run away with him. The heiress of a fine farm was a prize not to be met with every day. Philip broke into rage at this news, swore that if it turned out so, his niece should starve upon the town, and that he would take good care to balk the lad. His brother, he well knew, had left a will, to which he was executor, and that this will would in good time be forthcoming. After much talk and ransacking the house and swearing at his truant niece, he and his company departed, charging Caleb to keep the house and its contents for his use. This was all that Caleb's memory had retained of that day's proceedings. Curling had lately commented on the character of Philip Hadwin. This man was totally unlike his brother, was a noted brawler and bully, a tyrant to his children, a plague to his neighbors, and kept a rendezvous for drunkards and idlers at the sign of the bull's head at blank. He was not destitute of parts, and was no less dreaded for cunning than malignity. He was covetous, and never missed an opportunity of overreaching his neighbor. There was no doubt that his niece's property would be embezzled, should it ever come into his hands, and any power which he might obtain over her person would be exercised to her destruction. His children were tainted with the dissoluteness of their father, and marriage had not repaired the reputation of his daughters or cured them of depravity. This was the man whom I now proposed to visit. I scarcely need to say that the calumny of Betty Lawrence gave me no uneasiness. My father had no doubt been deceived, as well as my father's neighbors, by the artifices of this woman. I passed among them for a thief and a profligate, but their error had hitherto been harmless to me. The time might come which should confute the tale without my efforts. Betty, sooner or later, would drop her mask and afford the antidote to her own poisons, unless some new incident should occur to make me hasten the catastrophe. I arrived at Hadwin's house. I was received with some attention as a guest. I looked, among the pimpled visages that filled the piazza, for that of the landlord, but found him in an inner apartment with two or three more seated round a table. On intimating my wish to speak with him alone, the others withdrew. Hadwin's visage had some traces of resemblance to his brother, but the meek, placid air, pale cheeks, and slender form of the latter 
were powerfully contrasted with the bloated arrogance, imperious brow, and robust limbs of the former. This man's rage was awakened by a straw. It impelled him in an instant to oaths and buffetings, and made his life an eternal brawl. The sooner my interview with such a personage should be at an end, the better. I therefore explained the purpose of my coming as fully and in as few words as possible. Your name, sir, is Philip Hadwin. Your brother William of Malverton died lately and left two daughters. The youngest only is now alive, and I come, commissioned from her, to inform you that, as no will of her father's is extant, she is preparing to administer to his estate. As her father's brother, she thought you entitled to this information. The change which took place in the countenance of this man during this address was remarkable, but not easily described. His cheeks contracted a deeper crimson, his eyes sparkled, and his face assumed an expression in which curiosity was mingled with rage. He bent forward and said in a hoarse and contemptuous tone, "'Pray, is your name Mervyn?' I answered without hesitation, and as if the question were wholly unimportant, "'Yes, my name is Mervyn.' "'God damn it! Then you are the damned rascal!' but permit me to repeat his speech without the oaths with which it was plentifully interlarded. Not three words were uttered without being garnished with a God-damn-it, damnation, I'll be damned to hell if, and the like energetic expletives. You, then, are the rascal that robbed Billy's house, that ran away with the fool of his daughter, persuaded her to burn her father's will, and have the hellish, impudence to come into this house. But I thank you for it. I was going to look for you. You've saved me trouble. I'll settle all accounts with you here. Fair and softly, my good lad, if I don't bring you to the gallows, if I let you escape without such a dressing, damned impudence. Fellow, I've been at Malverton. I've heard of your tricks." So, finding the will not quite to your mind, knowing that the executor would balk at your schemes, you threw the will into the fire, you robbed the house of all the cash, and made off with the girl. The old fellow saw it all, and will swear to the truth. These words created some surprise. I meant not to conceal from this man the tenor and destruction of the will, nor even the measures which his niece had taken or intended to take. What I supposed to be unknown to him appeared to have been communicated by the talkative Caleb, whose mind was more inquisitive and less sluggish than first appearances had led me to imagine. Instead of moping by the kitchen fire when Eliza and I were conversing in an upper room, it now appeared that he had reconnoitred our proceedings through some keyhole or crevice, and had related what he had seen to Hadwin. Hadwin proceeded to exhaust his rage in oaths and menaces. He frequently clenched his fist and thrust it in my face, drew it back as if to render his blow more deadly, ran over the same series of exclamations on my impudence and villainy, and talked of the gallows and the whipping-post, enforced each word by the epithets damnable and hellish, closed each sentence with, and be cursed to you. 
there was but one mode for me to pursue. All forcible opposition to a man of his strength was absurd. It was my province to make his anger confine itself to words, and patiently to wait till the paroxysm should end or subside of itself. To effect this purpose, I kept my seat and carefully excluded from my countenance every indication of timidity and panic on the one hand, and of scorn and defiance on the other. My look and attitude were those of a man who expected harsh words, but who entertained no suspicion that blows would be inflicted. I was indebted for my safety to an inflexible adherence to this medium. To have strayed for a moment to either side would have brought upon me his blows. That he did not instantly resort to violence inspired me with courage, since it depended on myself whether food should be supplied to his passion. Rage must either progress or decline, and since it was in total want of provocation, it could not fail of gradually subsiding. My demeanor was calculated to damp the flame, not only by its direct influence, but by diverting his attention from the wrongs which he had received to the novelty of my behavior. The disparity in size and strength between us was too evident to make him believe that I confided in my sinews for my defense, and since I betrayed neither contempt nor fear, he could not but conclude that I trusted to my own integrity or to his moderation. I seized the first pause in his rhetoric to enforce this sentiment. "'You are angry, Mr. Hadwin, and are loud in your threats, but they do not frighten me. They excite no apprehension or alarm, because I know myself able to convince you that I have not injured you. This is an inn, and I am your guest.' I am sure I shall find better entertainment than blows. Come, continued I, smiling. It is possible that I am not so mischievous a wretch as your fancy paints me. I have no claims upon your niece but that of friendship, and she is now in the house of an honest man, Mr. Curling, where she proposes to continue as long as is convenient. It is true that your brother left a will, which his daughter burnt in my presence, because she dreaded the authority which that will gave you, not only over her property, but person. It is true that on leaving the house she took away the money which was now her own, and which was necessary to subsistence. It is true that I bore her company, and have left her in an honest man's keeping. I am answerable for nothing more. As to you, I meant not to injure you. I advised not the burning of the will." I was a stranger till after that event to your character. I knew neither good nor ill of you. I came to tell you all this because, as Eliza's uncle, you had a right to the information. So, you come to tell me that she burnt the will, and is going to administer—to what, I beseech you, to her father's property? Aye, I warrant you. But take this along with you. That property is mine— Land, house, stock, everything. All is safe and snug under cover of a mortgage, to which Billy was kind enough to add a bond. One was sued, and the other entered up a week ago. So that all is safe under my thumb, and the girl may whistle or starve for me. 
I shall give myself no concern about the strumpet. You thought to get a prize, but, damn me, you've met with your match in me. Phil Haddon's not so easily choused, I promise you. I intended to give you this news and a drubbing into the bargain, but you may go and make haste. She burnt the will, did she, because I was named in it, and sent you to tell me so? Good souls! It was kind of you, and I'm bound to be thankful. Take her back news of the mortgage, and as for you, leave my house. You may go scot-free this time, but I pledge my word for a sound beating when you next enter these doors. I'll pay it to you with interest. Leave my house, I say. A mortgage, said I, in a low voice, and affecting not to hear his commands. That will be sad news for my friend. Why, sir, you are a fortunate man. Malverton is an excellent spot, well watered and manured, newly and completely fenced, not a larger barn in the county. Oxen and horses and cows in the best order. I never set eyes on a finer orchard. By my faith, sir, you are a fortunate man. But pray, what have you for dinner? I am as hungry as a wolf. Order me a beefsteak and some potation or other. The bottle there, is it cider? I take it, pray, push it to this side. Saying this, I stretched out my hand towards the bottle which stood before him. I confided in the power of a fearless and sedate manner. Methought that, as anger was the food of anger, it must unavoidably subside in a contest with equability. This opinion was intuitive rather than the product of experience, and perhaps I gave no proof of my sagacity in hazarding my safety on its truth. Hadwin's character made him dreaded and obeyed by all. He had been accustomed to ready and tremulous submission from men far more brawny and robust than I was, and to find his most vehement menaces and gestures totally ineffectual on a being so slender and diminutive at once wound up his rage and excited his astonishment. One motion counteracted and suspended the other. He lifted his hand, but delayed to strike. One blow applied with his usual dexterity was sufficient to destroy me. Though seemingly careless, I was watchful of his motions, and prepared to elude the stroke by shrinking or stooping. Meanwhile I stretched my hand far enough to seize the bottle, and pouring its contents into a tumbler, put it to my lips. Come, sir, I drink your health, and wish you speedy possession of Malverton. I have some interest with Eliza, and will prevail on her to forbear all opposition and complaint. Why should she complain? While I live she shall not be a beggar. No doubt your claim is legal, and therefore ought to be admitted. What the law gave, the law has taken away. Blessed be the dispensers of the law. Excellent cider. Open another bottle, will you, and I beseech hasten dinner, if you would not see me devour the table. It was just, perhaps, to conjure up the demon avarice to fight with the demon anger. Reason alone would, in such a contest, be powerless, but, in truth, I spoke without artifice or disguise. If his claim were legal, opposition would be absurd and pernicious. I meant not to rely upon his own assertions, and would not acknowledge the validity of his claim till I had inspected the deed. 
Having instituted suits, this was now in a public office, and there the inspection should be made. Meanwhile, no reason could be urged why I should part from him in anger, while his kindred to Eliza and his title to her property made it useful to secure his favor. It was possible to obtain a remission of his claims even when the law enforced them. It would be imprudent, at least, to diminish the chances of remission by fostering his wrath and provoking his enmity. What? he exclaimed in a transport of fury. Ain't I the master of my own house? Out, I say! These were harsh terms, but they were not accompanied by gestures and tones so menacing as those which had been before used. It was plain that the tide, which so lately threatened my destruction, had begun to recede. This encouraged me to persist. "'Be not alarmed, my good friend,' said I, placidly and smiling. "'A man of your bone need not fear a pygmy like me. I shall scarcely be able to dethrone you in your own castle with an army of hostlers, tapsters, and cooks at your beck.' You shall still be master here, provided you use your influence to procure me a dinner. His acquiescence in a pacific system was extremely reluctant and gradual. He laid aside one sullen tone and wrathful look after the other, and at length consented not only to supply me with a dinner, but to partake of it with me. Nothing was more a topic of surprise to himself than his forbearance. He knew not how it was. He had never been treated so before. He was not proof against entreaty and submission, but I had neither supplicated nor submitted. The stuff that I was made of was at once damnably tough and devilishly pliant. When he thought of my impudence in staying in his house after he bade me leave it, he was tempted to resume his passion. When he reflected on my courage, in making light of his anger, notwithstanding his own impetuosity and my personal inferiority, he could not withhold his esteem. But my patience under his rebukes, my unalterable equanimity, and my ready consent to the validity of his claims, soothed and propitiated him. An exemption from blows and abuse was all that I could gain from this man." I told him the truth, with regard to my own history, so far as it was connected with the Hadwins. I exhibited, in affecting colors, the helpless condition of Eliza, but could extort from him nothing but his consent that, if she chose, she might come and live with him. He would give her victuals and clothes for so much housework as she was able to do. If she chose to live elsewhere— he promised not to molest her or intermeddle in her concerns. The house and land were his by law, and he would have them. It was not my province to revile or expostulate with him. I stated what measures would be adopted by a man who regarded the interest of others more than his own, who was anxious for the welfare of an innocent girl, connected with him so closely by the ties of kindred, and who was destitute of what is called natural friends. If he did not cancel, for her sake, his bond and mortgage, he would at least afford her a frugal maintenance. He would extend to her, in all emergencies, his counsel and protection. 
After that, he said, was sheer nonsense. He could not sufficiently wonder at my folly in proposing to him to make a free gift of a hundred rich acres to a girl, too, who scarcely knew her right hand from her left, whom from the first cunning young rogue like myself would chouse out of the hole and take herself into the bargain. But my folly was even surpassed by my impudence, since, as the friend of this girl, I was merely petitioning on my own account. I had come to him, whom I never saw before, on whom I had no claim, and who, as well as I knew, had reason to think me a sharper, and modestly said, "'Here's a girl who has no fortune. I am greatly in want of one. Pray give her such an estate that you have in your possession. If you do, I'll marry her and take it into my own hands.' I might be thankful that he did not answer such a petition with a horse-whipping. But if he did not give her his estate, he might extend to her, forsooth, his counsel and protection. "'That I've offered to do so,' continued he, "'she may come and live in my house if she will. She may come to do some of the family work. I'll discharge the chambermaid to make room for her. Lizzie, if I remember right, has a pretty face.' She can't have a better market for it than as a chambermaid to an inn. If she minds her P's and Q's, she may make up a handsome sum at the year's end. I thought it time to break off the conference, and, my dinner being finished, took my leave, leaving behind me the character of a queer sort of chap. I speeded to the prothonotary's office, which was kept in the village, and quickly ascertained the truth of Hadwin's pretensions. There existed a mortgage with bond and warrant of attorney, to so great an amount as would swallow up everything at Malverton. Furnished with these tidings, I prepared, with a drooping heart, to return to Mr. Curling's. End of chapter 33